We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. So, Andrew, I just want to thank you first for joining me today, being a part of this conversation. Um, I really don't know much at all about you or your journey. And so I know that Tracy uh, Whitaker connected us. I'm really excited to hear from you and for you to help bring awareness, conversation, and education to the world of childhood cancer awareness. Thank you for letting me share my story. For me, really, honestly, I'm an open book. I've never been ashamed or embarrassed or you know, it's been over 32 years since my um, treatment. So um, I'm actually written a book and plan on writing several books. So all of it will come out eventually. And so I have nothing to hide. I'm excited to be part of this month of healing. And for those that are going through it, just um, thinking about them and those that are about to embark on this scary journey. So I've been through it all and I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for you to walk us through this um, this journey, I guess, that you experienced. So why don't you just start from the beginning? I know you, you mentioned it's been 30, 30 something years ago that you experienced mm-hmm. it, but why don't you walk us through maybe um, what you remember, right. some of the things that you experienced? Absolutely. So I was in, diagnosed in July of 1990. So at that time, I was born in 1985. So I was four and a half. At the beginning, before all that happened, I was just a normal kid had a you know normal life as a child, spent most of my childhood up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where my mom's um, sister lived and had five cousins, you know, boys for me to play with and have brothers because at the time I was the only child until my sister came along in 1989. But uh, prior to that, it was just me and then my cousins. So that's kind of my childhood and where I spent most of my time prior to my diagnosis. And would inevitably, you know, kind of change my life, obviously, and my family's life in the summer of uh, 1990. So the summer of 1990, you were four and a half, and you mentioned that you were diagnosed. What do you remember about, do you remember being sick? Do you remember um, not feeling good? What are what are some of your earliest memories of, of kind of knowing that, oh, something's not quite right? A lot of that comes in my book, my children's book that is currently out called Leon, the Brave Little Lion. So it was just a weird thing that happened. I was staying with my um, cousins and my aunt up in Stillwater. And one day after spending time outside with my cousins, I fell out of a tree when playing with my cousins. Nothing was broken, nothing like that, but obviously just sore, you know, scrapes and bruises like, you know, little kids get. And then I stayed the night with my aunt and inevitably over the period of the night, I kept feeling worse and worse. Um, The pain got worse and worse. Um, We weren't really sure what was going on at the time. We just thought it might have been a a vertebrae or a broken arm or something like that from falling out of the tree. And just, uh, I'd never been in pain before. So really was just not sure exactly what was going on. Um, The kind of experiences I was having was unknown to me as a kid because I've never been hurt before. So uh, we really didn't know what was going on at first. And then, so I was in so much pain. The next morning, my mom drove drove up from Edmond, Oklahoma and picked me up in Stillwater where I was currently staying with my cousins. The entire way, I was in so much pain. I was just, um, it was unimaginable. 
And so that went on for about a week. I had swelling in my legs. I had, um, you know, numbing pain in my legs, um, swollen to the point where it looked like a tree trunk on a little kid's leg that went on and off for about two weeks. And we really didn't know what was going on. So then after about two weeks, the swelling slowed down. We just figured that it was some kind of virus or some kind of injury from me falling out of the tree. Still had no idea what was going on. A week and a half later, it went from one leg that was overly swollen for about two weeks to both legs to where I couldn't walk. And that's when the crutches came in. So it ultimately took over both legs and we were, you know, frightened, scared, really unsure what was going on. It wasn't normal, but we still weren't too worried. So the real something was wrong moment came when I was at swimming lessons. I loved to swim. I was like a little frog in the water, you know, swimming and, and trying to learn how to swim and have fun. And I just wasn't able to kick. I wasn't able to move my legs. I wasn't able to really do anything. And my mom will kill me for saying this, but she ultimately got mad at me because she thought I was messing around and just not playing around and not taking things seriously and doing what I should for the lessons that she paid for, rightfully so. And so uh, we left the lessons early and things just progressively got worse and worse. And just, you know, after about two weeks of this happening, we just went to my doctor, um, my pediatrician, who's Dr. Vincent. He's in Oklahoma City, Mike Vincent. He's actually in my children's book. And uh, he's out of uh, Mercy Hospital. And so we went to him, got some blood drawn. And about three days later, we got the uh, inevitable um, life-changing call. Found out that it was leukemia. And ALL um, was my diagnosis. So ALL, the doctor mm -hmm. told you that you are, I guess your, your mom, that you had leukemia. You were four and a half. Do you remember that conversation with the doctor or with your mom or... Um, do you kind of remember that moment of, okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> so God has given me this insane ability to like remember all my trauma, mainly so I can inspire and bring hope to kids now going through what I similarly went to. Now, as far as like the overall details, I don't remember every single detail or every single conversation, but I do remembering even before that happening, feeling like this isn't normal, like this pain is not normal. Obviously, I didn't break anything. I didn't fracture anything from falling out of the tree. So something, some, something serious must be happening right now. And ultimately, when they told me, they ultimately just told me the best way they could. They say that you have an illness that's in your body that is uh, attacking your red blood cells. So ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, ultimately has where your white blood cells are too high and they're not leveled out with your red blood cells. And it takes quite a bit through chemo, through radiation, for them to come back down and level out and work coherently with your red, red blood cells. I'm just saying that from just the diagnosis itself, but my parents made it much more basic as just like, you're going to be sick for a little while, you're going to be given some medicine, and we're here for you, and things like that. So that's just the pretty much the basic baseline sim simplicity that they could tell a four-year-old that he could understand. Now that you've been told that you're not, that, you know, you're going to be sick for a little bit, they're going to give you some medicine. What do you remember about going to the hospital? What do you remember about going and staying there and some of the procedures that you had to go through? Mm, yeah, I love that question because that's actually going to be the next book in the series that I've started. It's Leon's first hospital stay. So it's all the unknown of being in a scary place 
outside your comfort zone, outside your home, outside your safety net of protection of all things are good here. Nothing can happen to me here. I'm at, I'm, I'm at home. You know, nothing bad can happen when I'm here. So when I go to a place completely foreign, like an island, you know, that I've never been to before, and they're poking me the first night, they're prodding me, they're waking me up every three minutes, sticking me with needles, um, taking blood, um, checking on me, waking me up. It was frightening. It was extremely uncomfortable, frightening and scary and really hard to comprehend exactly what was all going on. But all I knew was is what I was in the hospital and that I was going to be there off and on for quite a while. So all that I knew as a child and all the safety, you know, that I felt in my own home was kind of taken away from me. And I was placed in this place that even though my family was there and even though the doctors and nurses I knew were there to protect and keep me safe, it wasn't the same. It didn't feel the same. It felt scary. It felt dark. It felt, you know, different. It felt emotionally scarring. Like, why can't I go home? Even though I had my bedding, even though I had my stuffed animals, even though I had everything with me, it's not home. So. I love that you are uh, creating a book series that kind of documents each of these big pieces to this. Tell me, let's go ahead and talk about your book series and kind of what your thoughts are and, and trying to put all of that together. Yeah. So Leon, the Brave Little Lion series was built out my of my own desire to create something to bring hope, joy and encouragement to kids and families going what I went through 32 years ago. Really wasn't sure at the time it was going to be a book series. I thought it was going to be a music project because I enjoy producing music and writing music. So I thought it might be to where we meet with kids and families and they share their stories with us and we can turn it into a song. But even though I have the ability to do that, I just don't have that much support as far as allies, resources and stuff to do that. So that kind of fell to the wayside. Although I did write a, a song for the book that's actually in the book currently. Oh. And it's in every book that is uh, purchased. So they have their own song that they can cling to. Um, it's called Brave Like Me. And it, it can be accessed at the back of the book through a QR code. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, it came down to, well, I wanted to write a autobiography about my experience, kind of a massive, just here's Andrew, here's what he went through, a connective type of, of story. But then I realized side effects of you know treatment, adult ADHD doesn't allow me the capacity or attention to uh, sit down and type for 10 hours a day. So I'm like, now that that's not an option, <laughs> strike two, how can I still try to accomplish my goal in a smaller amount of time, still grab it, I mean, grab somebody's attention, but be playful, um, you know, inspire and bring hope. And I just was like children's book. So uh, that's where the inspiration came from. But it's it still after that came to my mind and knew that's the avenue I wanted to go down. Still took a while to get there. So I had to talk to people in my life who have had books done before, who has known people who've done books, publishing companies, media companies, whatnot. And through a mutual friend, come to find out that the person I ended up getting my book done with was a childhood friend's dad who worked for a company called Lionsgate Publishing. Mm-hmm. And they actually did the Mercy Moon movie. They did the Jeremy Camp movie. Um, they did all the multimedia production and all that kind of stuff. And they're out of Edmond, Oklahoma. Wow. So it was definitely a God thing and definitely serendipitous that God made that relationship connect because I had grown up with his kids through youth ministry and going through Life Church and 
through childhood. So it was just uh, that much sweeter when I found out that he was the one going to be the one helping me put this together. So tell me about how long did you spend? How much time did you spend in the hospital? Kind of walk us through a little bit of that treatment um, in and out of the hospital. To start, obviously, um, since they had to get to it right away, so it didn't, you know, get any worse. Uh, they started chemo right away. Uh, I think I remember being in the hospital for the first time over the weekend and then getting to go home. So anytime that your fever was gone, anytime that you've ran your bag of chemo and you've ran your cycle, as they call it, as long as nothing else is pressing at that time, you know, in between staying in the hospital, you would go in for just blood work and things like that. So even though you had cancer, as long as it wasn't, you know, harming you or going any further at the time, you'd go through your cycle and be able to go home. So there were times in between um, layovers or stayovers that I would get to go home, feel like a normal kid again. I would get to go play baseball. I would get to go be a normal kid. Even though life was not normal, I was able to mask it quite a bit by trying to participate in, in just normal things, spending time with family, you know, being a kid, going to school and all that kind of stuff all why this is going on. Um, so the duration of my entire treatment was almost a six year period. So from 90 to 93, um, I was in remission for about three days in 93, thinking that we're good to go, getting all excited. And they're like, sorry, came back. So the treatment they had me on for three years didn't work. So shortly after that happened, they realized that the chemo that they gave me originally was working, but they needed some kind of support system in order to fully get rid of it. Then we were introduced. And by then, I think I was going to be, I was eight years old. So I was 10 when, I, when it was over. So from five to eight, I just did chemo. And then shortly after we found out that I relapsed, they also added um, radiation to that. That's a long time to dedicate your life to treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Not by choice, obviously. <laughs> I mean, if you're 10 years old, do you remember feeling different or um, think your life being different than the kids around you? Oh, of course, because a lot of holidays, a lot of missing out on, you know, just everyday recreation with friends, baseball games, tournaments, just a normal childhood really wasn't normal anymore. The hospital was normal. So we learned how to cope and learned how to adjust and to mold ourselves into what we were experiencing through friends that we made at the hospital, they had hospital parties, they had camps that we got to experience. So the hospital did a phenomenal job of, even though that wasn't our home, and even though that wasn't a normal thing for a child to go through, they tried to take care of the kids that were there and make that experience as normal as possible, even though it wasn't. And uh, so I really appreciated them for that and giving me some sense of normalcy within the confines of where I was staying while also trying to have a normal life outside of that as well. So balancing the two really made it difficult, but it also made it sweet and fun because I almost was living two different lives and having two different adventures at once. So in hindsight, at the moment, I probably felt robbed. I probably, probably felt my childhood was taken away from me. But now looking back, I really had a lot of great experiences and a lot of incredible people tried to make me feel at home as much as possible, even in a really dark situation. I love hearing that there were people that surrounded you that really 
tried to love you and support you and be there for you and create special experiences as a child that you do remember. Uh, so what are yeah. some of your favorite um, experiences that you can remember? So it's no longer open, but Camp Watonga back in the 90s was a massive camp out in Watonga, Oklahoma. And uh, they had the most incredible experiences. So they had train rides to where they had um, fake um, train robberies happen during the train ride. So they would have people come from the field where the train track where the train was on, ride up on horses and act like they're robbing the train. And so I have pictures in a photo album of me with a cowboy who has a bandana over his face and a hat and like a fake bag of money. So Camp Watonga was to me like a Camp Barnabas, which I'm not sure if you know what Camp Barnabas is. I also experienced that. But before Camp Barnabas or before Cabot existed or Cabot was created similarly, um, my first Cabot experience in that sense was um, Camp Watonga. And so we would go and stay for the weekend and they'd have food and Danny Cabot was my chaplain and, um, you know, through the whole thing. And obviously he has a, his organization now, but our Camp Cabot was Camp Watonga and it was it was incredible. They had massive slip and slides down the hill. They had train rides. They had train robberies. They had, you know, all kinds of fun stuff for us to experience as well. So it was really, really special. And then they also, OCCA, which is Oklahoma City um, Cancer Children's Association, my mom's vice president of that. They do Christmas parties throughout the year. They did movie days. They did, you know, Easter egg hunts. So great organizations within the hospital that tried to make our experience as fun and normal as possible, even in, you know, a situation that wasn't normal. So I would say Camp Watonga and then just those Christmas parties and then all the nurses and doctors during Halloween or Christmas would always dress up. So I remember a lot of my nurses at one Halloween all dressed up as Ninja Turtles. So uh, I have that memory to put in a book someday and, and things like that. So all the memories I experienced good and bad through the hospital has ultimately I had to go through that to now find my purpose. So. Those are fond memories to have in a dark moment. So those those sound like you were yeah. able to create some some positive experiences from that. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll always remember those. And um, saddened that Camp Watonga is no longer open, but Cabot Kids has incredible programs and different programs around the country have programs for kids and things like that. So from my experience, I know that kids are being able to experience the same thing. And even though they're going through treatment or have gone through it or you know, are getting ready to experience that there's something out there that they can cling on to, to feel normal and to feel, you know, accepted or to find joy even in a hard time. So I'm glad that those programs are now available as well. Yeah. There's some, there's some wonderful programs that, um, that are out there still. So do you remember, I know families talk about ringing the bell and mm. was that something that you did back then even? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, ringing the bell was um, bittersweet because of my um, relapse, even though I got to ring the bell and even though I got to be cancer free, the lingering thought that it could come back was always in the back of my mind for about four or five years. But the farther and farther out I got from having to go to checkups, the farther and farther out I had to go from actually going to the hospital to make sure that everything was good, the more and more sweet it became and the more and more I really believed that I was, I was, I was free of that. So it was uh, bittersweet at the time, but as things got farther and farther apart, it became even more emotional because I knew that I had conquered it and I can go live my life now and go home. <laughs> yeah, and go For home good. and stay home. Exactly. Yeah. Not have to anticipate that next that next hospital stay. 
let's go back to that relapse part. Mm-hmm. You said you were eight. Was it eight when you had your relapse? I want to say that's right. So from 95, six, seven, eight. Yeah, I'd be eight. Yeah. So I'd be eight because I turned um, five. I was diagnosed in July and I turned five of uh, uh, in December 19th of 90. So I would have probably been seven and a half or eight by the time I relapsed. Yes, that's correct. What do you remember as a as a child about that moment of being told, okay, you you now have not, you're not completely finished. You're not completely done with the treatments. So what, what do yeah. you remember about that relapse moment? More for my parents and less for me. Like I just remember the shock, the um, devastation that was on their face knowing that what they thought was over, what they thought they had, had gone through with their child for three years came back. And then I think it was even more scary that time because the cancer came back twice as strong. Now, ALL and AML are the easiest treated cancers of childhood cancers, but doesn't mean that everybody who gets it makes it out. So they were terrified. Um, I was too, um, because I knew how emotional it was for me and how much I hated getting, you know, stuck all the time, how much I hated going through all that treatment and, you know, ultimately losing my hair and just all the trauma that I went through as a kid, which no normal kid should have to go through. I just was in shock that I had to go through that again, but more or less from my parents. I think that they were just emotionally, you know, devastated that it wasn't gone. So that's the best I probably can describe from what I would believe I would experience or the thoughts I might have during something like that. You brought up the hair loss. Um, I know that I've interviewed a few in this last podcast series of of girls who go through that hair loss experience. Hmm. Can you, can you share that from a child, from your childhood experience about um, even being a boy that maybe, you know, shaving your head or short hair is not um, as big a deal for you maybe as it is for a girl, but what do you hear about that? Well, it's a story that has a lot of layers to it. So happy to share. So it happened um, shortly after diagnosis, I mean, relapse. So it didn't happen right away. It didn't happen because of chemo. It shortly happened, I think, a few months after we started radiation. Because back then, they um, put me in like an MRI machine, type of machine. And then they just shot lasers around my brain and down into my body. So a lot of the radiation and the lasers that were you know, penetrating me came from through my head and then down into my body. So that killed you know, a lot of follicles, a lot of hair. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was spending the time at my grandmother's house in um, Oklahoma City. And then I woke up one morning and there was hair, there was hair all over the pillow. And I didn't know what happened. Uh, I thought it was a dream at first. I thought it was like, what is this? Why do I have hair all over, you know, the, the, my pillow? Where did all my hair go? So it was really just a strange experience. I don't think I was sad about it. I think I was just freaked out about it. So it was like, cause I wake up, I go to bed one night with a full head of hair and then I wake up the next morning and it's completely gone. It's just all over the bed. And so for me, it was just a real, what just happened? Where's my hair? And I was holding it in my hands in clumps and I'm just like, how did this happen? And my mom informed me that, you know, what we should have told you, which we didn't told you is one of the side effects that may happen um, during this second round of treatment, not just with your um, chemo, but also radiation, it p- could potentially kill your hair cells and, and make you lose your hair. And so uh, 
we kind of laughed about it. She came in. She's like, oh, my gosh, your hair is gone. What do you do? Like she was trying to be playful. She was trying to be silly about it. So I wouldn't get upset. So my mom was a champ when it came to me losing my hair because she came to pick me up. And then obviously my grandmother probably called her and like, Andrew woke up this morning. His hair's gone. <laughs> it's all over the bed. And so when she got there, she tried to be silly and have fun with it. So um, I do remember um, going to school a little embarrassed, um, afraid of ridicule, afraid of being made fun of, of, you know, being bullied and things like that. And a little bit of that happened, but something incredible came out of that experience. Um, the principal at my elementary school at the time, I went to Washington Irving in Edmond, and uh, I ended up getting to have my own day. I got to wear a hat. I had an assembly about me. Andrew had his own day. You know, they kind of celebrated me. So I got to wear a hat in school as long as I didn't have hair. So the entire year until my hair grew back, I got to wear a hat and I got to, you know, a lot of kids were cheering for me and things like that, even though they had no idea what was going on because we're all eight-year-olds, you know, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, because five through, you know, I think nine or 10 go through, you know, kindergarten, elementary, all the way through, uh, you know, fifth grade or whatever. So I ultimately um, didn't feel too bad about that. Um, but I also believe that bald is beautiful. I believe that your identity is not wrapped up in what you wear or the kind of hair you have, even though that's very hard for humans to grasp. Um, so it really helped me, even though, you know, I did worry, I did care. Um, I was afraid of being made fun of, which I was quite a bit for a while, but I learned how to get a, a harder shell about it and realized they're making fun of me because they don't understand. They don't get what's, what's I've been going through. They don't understand what I'm experiencing. So it was a little bit easier for me to have grace. So um, will uh, Leon the Lion, does, will he ever lose his hair in your book series? Oh, yes. Yes. So each layer is each part of my story has its own book. So the first book is just called Leon the Brave Little Lion. It's an intro ultimately about um, before treatment, just growing up, like I mentioned, in Stillwater, experiencing life with my family, just being a normal kid. Um, building forts, you know, sleepovers, all the fun stuff that kids do. And then um, so pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis and there's just the shock and the experience and the emotion that my family and I have. In the first book, we meet our primary doctors. Um, back then it was Dr. Sexauer and Dr. Nitschke. Neither one of those are easy to pronounce. So we changed them for kids. And so we have Dr. Ronnie the Rhino, who's Dr. Dr. Nitschke. So all the people in the book are real people. They're just changed into animals. And then Dr. Sexauer is Dr. Gidget, the gazelle, which is a female. And then my primary pediatrician, like I said, it was Dr. Vincent, and he's the giraffe in the book. So it has, it has a name tag called Dr. V on it. So it's introduction to the doctors, to the um, team that's going to be taking care of me, kind of walking th the first conversation, walking through what we're going to be experiencing, the kind of treatment I'm going to be having, what your day-to-day -day is going to look like, and things like that. And then the next book will be Leon's first hospital stay. So similarly to what we talked about earlier, what that experience was like at my, for my first time away from home and the things that, and the motions that it, it took on me and things like that. So yeah, we'll have several fun ones. So every layer of my story will have a book behind it. That that's going to be one powerful series. I'm, I'm excited yeah. to, uh, do, do you have a timeline that you're working on for those releases? Um, the next one will probably come um, next summer. So I usually have let myself, so officially our first book came in May, 2022. So our first full year 
was this past May 2023. So I'm going to try to have the second one out um, May uh, 2024, or at least during the summer or fall of uh, next year. And so every two years, because we're also a business too. Um, so we're not just a book, we're also a company. So we want to allow um, growth within our company and people and as many people as possible to find our book before we uh, head into another one so they don't get behind or whatever. But the beauty about our book is simple so they can get caught up and understand where we are, no matter what book they have. So, yeah. That is really neat. Oh, I love that. Talk a little bit more about what you experience now as an adult as a result of having childhood cancer. So come to find out that ADHD runs in our family. So I don't know if it had caused that by chemo, but it definitely didn't help. It definitely probably amplified it quite a bit from what I would art was already experiencing with childhood ADHD and things like that. So the chemo, the radiation probably just makes things ultimately worse. So growing up with through chemo radiation with ADHD back in the day when Ritalin was still a thing, I was on Ritalin by the time I was probably six years old, very small doses and Concerta or any, you know, medicine back then that could help with mood and focus and things like that. So I've always dealt with processing problems, sometimes communication, reading social cues, understanding spatial awareness when it comes to in-person communication, um, connection, things like that. Um, I was diagnosed at 30 years old. I'm 37 now. So seven years ago at 30, I was diagnosed with a neurocognitive disorder which has a lot of those side effects. So the side effects I have from that diagnosis also are still some of the side effects that are also found in ADHD. I also deal with, you know, compulsive obsessive disorders sometimes. If it's excessive purchases, buying things even when I don't need them, or just being fixated on one thing, um, hyperfixation is one of the main things that, you know, ADHD people deal with. Low dopamine sometimes and things like that. So focus, obviously. So a lot of that has always been in my life. But as I've grown older, and as I've learned how to, how to, you know, cope and work through those situations, I've learned tricks and put tools in place that help me better recognize those things when they're happening. Even though a lot of that won't ever be gone, I can manage it a lot better. And even though I deal with a lot of stuff, I'm still able to do what I want to do. And it feels comforting knowing that regardless of what cancer tried to take from me, it also gave me my purpose, God's plan for me. So um, as an adult, I've always felt a little, you know, shorted, to be honest, when it comes to what I went through. I felt like my childhood was taken away from me. I felt like what is normal and easy for some people, if it's processing, if it's communicating, if it's just basic day-to-day things that normal people can do without thinking about, it's just a normal thing, I deal with um, a lot harder but even though that may become a problem short term or a, you know, a lapse or a um, situation short term, then I know that I can eventually overcome that through hard work, even though it may take longer than it may take other people. I try not to let it uh, affect my attitude or, or who I am. I, I have a feeling the what you endured as a child brought much strength out of you um, as a child. And then now you were just continuing to fulfill that strength and um, dig into some of those experiences that have have led you to where you are now. So I, I love how you identify how you're fulfilling, you know, God's plan in your life now as a result of those experiences. So super powerful. Okay. So you mentioned you have a sister and do you have other siblings? Yes, I do. Yeah. And actually an incredible experience I had about three weeks ago. 
I got to go up to Colorado, where my, where my brother currently lives. We're from Oklahoma, born and raised in Oklahoma. Um, my sister went to OSU. My mom's side all went to OSU. My dad went to OU. My brother wanted to spread his wings and go to Arkansas University. So we are also a Razorback, a Cowboy, and a Sooner. And so both my siblings um, are married. We have one nephew, so one kid in the family now. So my parents became um, grandparents last October. So he'll be one October 15th of this next month. So we're really, really happy and excited. And I am the oldest of three. So my sister and I are three and a half years apart. My brother and I are nine. And I also have two parents that are still together and we'll be celebrating their 40th here pretty soon. So, so you've got a solid family as far as the family support and, and oh, yeah. through that through the childhood cancer piece of that. Can you, hey, do you talk to your siblings about those experiences when y'all were kids? Do, do your siblings remember much about you having cancer and the treatments and all of that? So she was one when I was diagnosed and she was there and she was part of the whole process. And there's a lot of, times of us, you know, laying together, um, her sleeping in the bed with me, just being a good little sister, acting like a big sister for her big brother and just being supportive and stuff like that. So she's actually going to be part of our next story. And I'll drop this funny note and that's going to actually be in it. So a funny story that just kind of correlates with how you can find joy in everything and and, um, laughter and everything, even hard times. So there was a time where my grandmother, who's my mom's mom, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, came down to stay with me at the hospital to relieve my parents. And my parents, I, my sister, and my grandmother were all in the room together. Well, my sister happened to get into my grandmother's overnight bag, and she happened to pull out one of my grandmother's bras and proceeded to put it on her head and started running around the room with a bra over her head. And in and that moment, it was very enlightening and funny because it was a very somber it was my first time grandmother seeing me so it was very emotional very sad very hard for my grandmother who obviously had known me since i was born to see her um, grandson go through that so unknown to Lindsay, she was able to bring laughter into a very traumatic very emotional very um trying time um to break the kind of the darkness or break the uh break the strain or the emotion that was going on. So it's just serendipitous that a little one-year-old can bring so much joy and laughter and comedy into a very, very hard situation without her even knowing what she's doing to kind of uh, make things more lightened and, and fun. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. That is, that's such a great story. And, and it's, it, what makes it almost more humorous is that they just, they don't even know they're bringing such joy to the room, you know, when they do things yeah. like that. So. Yeah. Well, okay. So tell me, you've mentioned so many wonderful resources and so many great things. Do you, do you still, obviously you're writing the books, but do you, are you immersed in the childhood cancer community now in what you do? Obviously with your books, you are. So, I mean, I know the answer is yes, but tell us a little bit more about what you've just invested your time and energy into. So with our book, the mission from the beginning is to get as many books in the hands as kids at Children's Hospital as possible across the United States, uh, starting with our local Children's Hospital. So we are immersed and connected with the OK Kids Corral. They're one of our major um, distribution places. So what we ultimately do from a business standpoint in an LLC, which is leonthebrave.com, we ultimately partner with local um, businesses that can buy books in bulk if it's a monthly donation or if it's a, a bulk purchase. And any book and every book that they buy, 
We do a personalized sticker of their company logo and information in every book. So when we go hand them to kids at the OK Kids Corral or the St. Francis Children's Hospital, which we're currently in as well, or Children's Hospital directly or other outlining um, locations and places like nonprofits that are connected to kids at Children's Hospital, any of our distribution resources places, um, try to get as many books into the hands of those kids as possible. So we do that through partnerships with local companies. And so ultimately what they do is when they buy a book, it's then going to be donated and distributed to kids at children's hospitals and facilities like the OK Kids Corral, directly children's hospital and other places like that directly. And we'll deliver those books on their behalf. We also give them, you know, exposure marketing on all of our social platforms. We have a fan page called Land the Brave Little Lion where they can find out um, more about us. We'll go to their place of business if they're not too busy. We'll shoot video with them and their employees. We'll take some pictures and then we'll post um, their partnership with us. So that's the way we get back to those companies um, and businesses. And then we also invite them in to our communities that we're connected to. So we are involved with the Cab Kids um, organization. We give 10% of every book bought goes to the Cabot Kids. And every book, their logo, their information is in there. So when people buy a book, they're not only buying a book to be donated, they're also buying a book that financials will be going towards a great nonprofit organization that we believe in and we support and that are, is our main cause. So we are involved in with the Cabot Kids Foundation. I've been involved with OCCA since I was little, helping my mom at the Christmas parties. We're involved in a lot more nonprofits. Um, the Dream Center, which is a church out of Oklahoma City near Crossroads. They do phenomenal community work for the community. If it's, you know, helping with finances, if it's helping with home repairs, if it's education, if it's a community center, if it's just serving the community down there in general, any organization or nonprofit that has an event that gives or raises funds for something. And they also let us come and sell books at that event. Every book we sell, we'll give $5 to the, to the organization or group or function they're raising funds for kind of a match thing. So as a company, we provide a lot for local businesses, but ultimately our goal is to get as many books in the hands of kids and children's hospitals as possible without them paying a single cent. And that's where those partnerships come in. I love that. So powerful and such an encouraging thing for the children and, and the families just to know that, that there's others out there who have been through this, who this book is not, not a fictional in, in a, in a stance of, that it hasn't happened. This is something that right. someone has lived and this is something that yeah. someone has experienced. Absolutely. Oh, I love what you do. I love everything about it. This was absolutely fantastic. I cannot believe that. I mean, do you Thank hear this you. all the time? You look so good. You would never know you had childhood cancer. Yeah. yeah. I really feel like I'm not masking our conversation. I'm transparent, but also I think God has just given me the fragility and the ability to let the past stay in the past. And he's strengthened me emotionally, spiritually, physically, you know, relationally to where unless you asked or unless, uh, you know, the, the question came up, then you, you would never know. So I find that as, as a blessing as well. But I'm never afraid to share my story um, if asked or, or anything like that. But uh, yeah, well, thank you. What a, what a great story of hope, you know, a story of strength for families to hear and know that 
that something you experienced at four and a half years old, you know, now has brought you, would you say you're 30? I'm telling you. 37. Yeah, 37. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so nothing to be shy about as far as, you know what, I have a great life as a survivor of childhood cancer. So that is fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share my story. And uh, we're here with you. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072.